Welcome back to the Host Dispatch. In this episode, we had the tremendous pleasure of chatting with our winner of the Spring 2022 Host Publications Chapbook Prize, Marianne Nagy Captain. Marianne is a poet, screenwriter, and educator living in Austin, Texas. She is a 2021 graduate of the Missioner Center for Writers, and her first chapbook, Copy Body, was published in 2017 by Empty Set Press. On Saturday, March 5th, we will be celebrating Marianne and her chapbook, 16 Rabbits, with a virtual launch party. The reading will take place via Zoom and stream to the Malvern Books YouTube channel. So if you're listening to this before March 5th, please do join us for the celebration. The link will be in the show notes. We had so much fun talking to Marianne about the poems in 16 Rabbits, how she came to poetry as an art form, what it means to be an experimental writer, and so much more. So we hope you enjoy this conversation amongst friends. And as always, thanks for listening. Welcome to the Host Dispatch, Marianne. We're so excited to talk to you today. Thank you. I'm also excited. Yeah. It's been such a blast this past year working with your manuscript, getting to know your poems a little more all the time. And yet I was still surprised to find that when I started doing a little bit of preparation for this podcast episode, that there were things about your poems that I started to realize that just hadn't landed for me yet. Um, and that was so, so incredibly delightful. And it made me just all the more excited for our upcoming launch mm-hmm. and AWP festivities. Yeah. Um, I was telling Anar yesterday that even I'm finding threads that I didn't know existed in the work now that it's in a book mm-hmm. and it's curated in this way that I've never experienced the poems. And it's just interesting because there are these like repeated motifs that I didn't know I was experimenting with. Or I did maybe at the time, but like the state of mind when you're in the middle of creating something, how deeply like emotional and tumultuous it is, like it is not accessible outside of that space to be able to like track it, even just like how many doves are in this collection. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yes, Yes, the doves really just pop off the page. Um, It brings me joy that you mentioned this, Claire, because um, yesterday when Marianne came by to pick up the books, you said something almost like verbatim. <laughs> and yeah, I wonder if that's a testament to the power of print and the power of holding a book mm-hmm. and just like the importance of layout and book design and kind of like that being a space where your poems really shine and come to life. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting phenomenon. It is. And I'll just start by saying that, you know, something we've always we've always known about these poems is that they transport us, right? They they take us from one place in the world to the next, all over the globe. And I've gotten really curious lately, Marianne, about the time or the space and time in which the poems themselves were written. 
and how much of that mm. happened for you in one place after the fact, reflecting on all of these travels, or were some of these notes or some of these full poems taken down in different parts of the world? Yeah. So a poem that's not in this collection that sort of um, planted the seed for me, it was a poem that I wrote that was published maybe like five years ago. I wrote it in Vietnam. I did a two-week writing residency there in Hanoi, and it was like very much a whirlwind. Like I got invited to come three weeks before I landed and it's a 12 hour time difference. And there was just like this headspace that I was in that I had never experienced before because I just didn't sleep for four days because I hadn't mentally prepared for that kind of shift in time. And because I wasn't sleeping and because I was in this place that was so new to me, I started to just write down all of these kind of like surreal experiences I was having. And still in my memory, that trip is like a dream. And I've met so many random people in such a short period of time. So I wrote this poem called Notes from Vietnam, which was really, really long. And then it was really, really short. And then it was long again and, and kind of like trying to capture these moments. And I remember sending it to the people that I'd spent the most time with in Vietnam. And, and it was only accessible to them because it was sort of this, like that time that so-and-so did this and the people who experienced it are the only ones that have that memory. But it really started to make me think about how these memories that we have when we're traveling is like, we feel homesick for the most part. Like I always feel homesick, mm -hmm. but I never know what I'm homesick for because when I'm here and in my home, I feel homesick for other places and interested in this sort of like restlessness of never feeling like you're in the right place. And so I lived in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. So Meditations from Keene Valley, I wrote during a time that I was doing a writing residency and living with a really good friend of mine and her family in Jay, New York, which is like an hour, maybe like an hour and 15 minutes south of the Canadian border near Montreal. So it was really far north. And I remember being there and thinking like, I don't know how I'm going to remember all of this. And I want to. So how do I capture this? And so I just started writing notes to myself and then thinking about how do I capture kind of these moments that no one else is experiencing? So I was alone all the time, other than my friend Brittany, who is like a main cast member in my life and in this book, <laughs> she was living in Vermont at the time. And so I remember just like being alone all, all the time. So I was trying to like capture these moments so that I could share them with other people so that they felt real because I didn't trust my experience. And I think that's kind of what the book is doing in some way, which is solidifying these very, very private experiences, these things that you, you doubt them immediately because there's no one there to like justify them or to tell you that they're real. Um, and I think that's something that travel does. It, it's completely novel, right? So like you're attracted to the novel aspect of traveling. Like I've never experienced a place like Vietnam before. And then you throw in like the time loop of being 12 hours in the future. And so that piece goes, but then every single memory feels precious because it's new and novel and you'll never experience it again. And so how do I record this and try to communicate like the depth and the gravity of these moments? And then how do I do it in a way that feels universal so that I can like reach out my hand and invite you in? 
Yeah, the idea of like capturing things in the way that you experience them for the first time. Um, I remember there was a previous podcast where we spoke with Stephen Espada Dodson, and we talked a little bit about the concept of the beginner's mind, which is a therapeutic mm. process of seeing things that you've seen a million times, like it's the first time. But when you're traveling, it's so much easier to access that experience because you probably really are seeing something like that for the very first time. Mm -hmm. But it's such a like special and unique and um, charged experience that it's beautiful that you can tap into um, travel and marry that with creating like a universal experience in your poems. Yeah. And also when you were talking, Marianne, it just reminded me like you describing the preciousness of those novel experiences and the kind of memories that they create. That's childhood, baby. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> that's kind of a way as adults, we can be transported back into childhood mm -hmm. when again, you're experiencing everything for the first time. And so those memories feel so incredibly precious. And that's another really strong thread in your book. One of the strongest, I would argue. So yeah, I'm, I'm just reveling in yet another realization that hadn't really occurred to me before that this <laughs> idea of travel and the sort of eyes that you see the world through mirroring that, that childlike mentality. And as we're talking, I'm thinking about like, so my family came to America when I was five. Um, and my sister, who's three years younger than me, did not have the experience of culture shock. Like she doesn't remember the experience of coming from one place that had a different landscape, a different culture, a different language, a different people altogether. I mean, Cairo, Egypt is very different than suburban Pennsylvania. Um, and so I have these rich memories of culture shock and everything feeling completely and, and entirely novel. And I think that that is my first point of trauma. And there's like a neutrality to that trauma because it wasn't necessarily like a violence, but it was an avalanche of like newness and a lot of confusion. And there, I mean, in 16 Rabbits, the poem, like you really get that. The first word that I knew, the only word I knew was no, because I had been in a French school in Cairo and I knew that no in French was the same as no in English. Um, and I have, and this is also in the poem, is like the image of pink flamingos in lawns, which was mind blowing to me. Like, what is this thing? <laughs> like, what is this? No it's literally a novelty item, but it's also entirely a novelty to me. Um, and so I think that with traveling, part of my subconscious self, part of my child self is trying to recreate those moments of newness and confusion and leaning into it. And yeah. in fact, when I lived in the Adirondacks, I was spending a lot of time in Montreal and I would specifically stay in the French district where everybody was speaking French. No one would speak English unless I spoke it to them. And I remember sitting in cafes and working on some of these early drafts of these poems and feeling really, really at home, not knowing the language not knowing what people were saying. I had the same experience in Hanoi. I didn't know any Vietnamese, but I remember sitting in public spaces and being completely enraptured by and felt 
I felt very safe in a place where I didn't understand anything. And there's something weirdly backwards about that, you know, but Mm -hmm. I think it's the familiarity and comfort of those first few years in America where I was just like, I don't know what's going on and I have to figure it out. So I think that part of my brain is trying to recreate and in a lot of ways, like reclaim those feelings of helplessness by being in the driver's seat um, and doing things that scare me, which is kind of the engine of this collection is how do I write about these terrifying things that have happened to me and these feelings of isolation and confusion and how do I do it in a way that doesn't feel um, performative or doesn't feel like I'm trying to speak on behalf of a group of people, but is like just entirely vulnerable in the way that only a child can be vulnerable. Hmm. I love that you're bringing up the theme of, of trauma and trying to heal from it because several of these poems are meditations and a lot of the conversations that Claire and I have in the office about poetry always leads us back to meditation and healing and how those are essential for us to create art and to edit art and to understand art. And you have a lot of poems titled Meditations um, in specific places in this book, but there's also so many just like religious callbacks. This whole book has a very strong spiritual energy behind it. Um, And so I feel like you do use these meditations um, to kind of discover these truths and to accept certain realities and experiences and to conjure new ones. Well, I just wanted to piggyback off of that a little bit, Anar, and say that a meditation could also be viewed as yet another locale of vulnerability, another way of like creating vulnerability or synthesizing it for yourself in a moment or being open to it, which just reminds me of what you were saying, Marianne, about um, trying to access that formative childhood immigrant experience, right, of being in a situation where you don't know what's going on at all and being able to kind of channel that now as both a site of trauma, but also a place of comfort and a place where you can kind mm-hmm. of explore vulnerability and therefore also create poems. Um, so I, I just feel like vulnerability and creation are, are, are very braided together in this book. Yeah. And that feels very true to me just about, like Anar was saying, the way that we think, the way that I think about art and poetry that feels really true. That doesn't feel performative at all. It's like meditating is creating a kind of experience for yourself, but I think it's also just being open to whatever might come through in those moments. Well, I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking about like, I used to teach teenagers, like I worked with and like ran and did a lot of different kinds of workshops and after school programs when I lived in Philadelphia. And I realized like, they were my best teachers because there is something about the child brain, the teenage brain before it's fully developed that is in a lot of ways inherently vulnerable and inherently like unapologetic. And I remember we would do these workshops and some of the poems that these kids would write would just be so honest and real and 
not necessarily poetic, quote unquote, um, or not necessarily have like a unique take on the world, which I feel like a lot of times there's so much pressure to have these unique, insightful, intellectual ideas. But instead, they were just speaking directly with no pretenses about the human condition. Mm -hmm. And that is so inspiring to me. It's also so radical. And before I came to Austin in Philadelphia, I was very involved in the experimental writing scene. Experimental writing for me doesn't necessarily mean you're creating work that fits within the canon of what we think of as like capital E, capital W, experimental writing. But experimental writing, for me, it's a practice where you do something that you've never done before. You are experimenting with your writing. And so I did a lot of that in Philly. And when I came here, I realized, what is the thing that I've been avoiding this whole time? And I was really good with rhythm and I was really good with language. And I had like this wide vocabulary because of the experimental practices that I had engaged in, but I was so evasive. I like never said things directly. And so the biggest challenge was how do I use those experiences that I had with teens and younger writers where they're just like, no, this is it. Like, this is what it is. Instead of writing around what it is, how do I do it in a way that feels direct and because it's so direct and unflinching, it's the scariest thing in the world. Like writing these poems. I mean, there are some poems in this collection that I can't read without getting choked up because it's so naked, like just completely naked on a stage. It also felt scary because like, what if I get in trouble? <laughs> you know, like what if I get grounded? Like my child self was very present in like the fear of actually saying these things out loud. Um, like, what if I get the story wrong and dad gets mad at me and allowing that part of me to kind of like take the wheel and, and guide me, probably not take the wheel because you're not supposed to drive when you're a child, <laughs> but to kind of guide me through that, I had to really face those feelings. I found that it's much more jarring and interesting to me when I read work that is just like, here I am, here it is, this is the human condition, whether it's written by a 13-year-old or a professional writer or whatever, like that is what stays with me the most. And so that's what I tried to do. Yeah. How do I scare the reader the same way that I was scared while I was writing these poems? <laughs> well, I think what you're describing is, is one of those features that I realized was so important to your work recently, which is storytelling. Every single one of these poems tells a story. And that's not like a given in poetry, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it might be more common now than it was in the past. But for your work, storytelling is a huge feature and it's really tied up in family um, and it's really tied up, therefore, in your childhood self. And so it totally yeah. makes sense that that kind of narrative responsibility would feel kind of daunting. Yeah, I feel like I was so scared of telling stories for a long time because with poetry, it's like you can write something that's very abstract and you can lure the reader in with the shape of the poem, the sound of the poem, the like meaning maybe 
but it could be its own thing. But with a story, like it is so ancient and Mm -hmm. there's these archetypal approaches to storytelling. And I was so afraid I would do it wrong, that I wouldn't be able to tell these stories in a way that felt compelling or that held the same kind of emotional variance and weight that they did in my life. But then I started interviewing my parents maybe like two or three years ago when I was first like, you know, I need to like really talk to my parents about their lives because my mom was 30 when she had me and 33 when she had my sister. And so she had this whole life that I didn't know anything about because she's very private. Whereas my dad is like Hmm. the story of the 16 rabbits I heard growing up. I just, I mean, he recently told it like not even a year and a half ago. And it's these like motifs that run through our lives. And that's not the only rabbit story. There's two other rabbit stories that I initially was going (laughs) to include in 16 rabbits. Uh, My mom has a rabbit story about, you know, how her mother used to keep rabbits also on a roof and she never butchered them because she loved them. She had like hundreds of them. And my grandfather would be like, you need to do something with these rabbits. But she just loved breeding them because she was like so attached to these rabbits. And eventually one of them got sick and then they all got sick and it was like a very traumatic. So it's just funny to me because these stories are so um, of, of their entire experiences in their lives to think about these stories that have stuck around, you know, like my dad was 10 when the Mm -hmm. story in 16 rabbits happened and he's 66 now and he's still telling it like that just blows my mind. And I think that that's the way that we connect to people. And that's the kind of specificity that I was trying to go for is like stories are universal. Um, storytelling is so ancient though especially the the oral story that gets passed down Mm -hmm. like the story of the 16 rabbits being passed down to you from your father and you mentioned once that um he's he's told it to you many times and that you even have a Mm -hmm. recording of him um telling you that story in arabic right yeah yeah i'm wondering now how many times you've been told that story could you even estimate? Well, okay. So there's three rabbit stories. So the first rabbit story is the story of the 16 rabbits, which is in the book. The second one is a story about my mom and her mother's rabbits who she loved. And then there's this third rabbit story that I've heard the most out of all of them. Mm. And when he was around the same age, so 10, probably the same batch of rabbits that were killed on the roof, my grandmother gave him and his sister... Nahid, who also lives in Pennsylvania, um, they each got a baby bunny. And Nan Nahid was very gentle and precious with her baby bunny. She's a couple years older than my dad. But my dad, who was this like squirrely little 10 year old who was like trying to be silly, kept playing this game with this baby bunny where he would put the bunny down the front of his shirt and then pull it back out the bottom. Yeah. And he was doing this over and over again with this baby bunny and like laughing and laughing. And my aunt is watching him and she's just like, what are you doing? And he's like, the baby bunny loves it. And then after maybe like an hour of doing this, he realized that the bunny had died because he had suffocated the rabbit. And so tragic story. 
but he loves to tell the story. <laughs> and I'm just like, every time he tells it, I'm like, dad, this is not funny. Like, why are you laughing? It's really tragic. But that kind of like attitude towards trauma where you just have to laugh about it mm-hmm. is definitely something I've inherited. And I think being able to laugh about these like shocking and traumatic moments in your life, whether it's like surviving an earthquake, you know, because the original version of El Zidzel had a lot of my dad in it. So I interviewed him and I have that story recorded as well. During that earthquake, he had just had neck surgery. And so he was in bed and he couldn't move. And so when the earthquake hit, he was already in so much pain from the surgery and he had to figure out a way to get out of this house and they couldn't get out before the earthquake ended. And they were okay. We were all okay. I was there. I remember I was peeing when the earthquake happened. I was only four. I remember like being on the toilet and wondering why the world was shaking. (laughs) And he tells the story of the earthquake and he has these moments of levity in it. And there's so much laughter and there's so much like, can you believe this thing happened? Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of like unlocking of the trauma and trying to create moments of levity where you can just like laugh at it is what's helped me be able to say these things out loud and be able to have these deeply emotional, deeply traumatized litanies in this book while also recognizing that These are such, in some ways, universal experiences. And we kind of have to laugh at how ridiculous the world is and how, because what else are we going to do? In that laughter, I also feel other possibilities. You know, I I feel that in, in the work as well, like these possibilities of like human truths in the laughter, Mm. like the bunnies are so fragile and that is absurd like it's an absurdity that especially a 10 year old child not understanding that might find a shocking in a way that makes you laugh um Mm -hmm. and in the laughter there's also just this acceptance that like yes these these traumas that are now stories that are sort of mythologized and made legendary in the family through this oral tradition of just telling them over and over again have become less traumatic and more of just a stitch in the fabric of the people in this family and like their collective story if that makes sense is like being able to laugh at it is like accepting it and kind of welcoming it because it's going to be part of that memory part of that collective memory whether you laugh at it or cry right it's there I do feel like there are these really broad truths that you can access even just in the specifics of of these stories that are obviously so far from like my lived experience um, that it just makes it all the more amazing Yeah. And they're so far from my lived experience too. Mm. And I think that that parallel between the childhood of my parents and the childhood of me and my sister is it's so different. I mean, even the Cairo that they grew up in is so different than the Cairo that exists now. And so these experiences that they have are so unique to that time and place, like all of our experiences are so unique to this time and place that they also tie into these meditations as well, which is like this moment 
only existed where the rabbits were on the roof where my grandmother was still alive and my dad was only a child this tiny little blip in the history of the world and now it's just this tiny little poem in an endless library of poems and in a lot of ways that is really comforting to me is knowing that these stories that can have an impact on an individual also are just one of infinite numbers of stories that could have infinite impact on infinite individuals that exist. And it is so much bigger than us. And in mm. so many ways, that is what's enabled me to write these poems. And to be so vulnerable is to just remember that like, I'm not special. And these experiences are not special. I just have the ability and the privilege to record them. I remind myself that all the time is like, all of us have stories like this, but not all of us have the ability or the privilege to record them and share them with others. We all have these stories. It reminds me of at the end of Meditation in Guanajuato, those lines, especially paired with what comes before, not every experience is worth recording. And then mm. reverence, I'm writing with reverence. There's this there's this contradiction there, right? That is so great. And we talked about a while while you were doing edits on that poem of like, yeah, I can recognize both of those things as being true at the same time. Yeah. And that these experiences that I'm having aren't maybe even unique, but it is my lived experience. And in recording it, it also becomes something else. And so it's like the reverence there is both for life and, and, and living the experience and also the transformation of of the, the art that is made uh, from it. I, I find that like a really beautiful contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as you're speaking it, it's making me think of meditation in Philadelphia, where the poem says there's only this and everything else are these just like random commonplace experiences and observations like nothing really matters unless you decide it matters. And the things we decide that don't matter will be forgotten. Mm -hmm. And the idea of a writer's job is like, I'm just going to read this line in meditation in Philadelphia. Says I didn't I didn't think of it as an analogy at the time, but in true habit, I sift for meaning now that I'm here at a desk in Philadelphia attempting to resurrect a past that does not exist, which I think is like the job of the writer. A, we decide what has meaning and what meaning is, and B, we have to like decide that this thing that we've deemed meaningful can fit into the larger narrative of the human condition. And that's like a lot of power, but it is sort of this power that we decide that we have. Like, but as a poet, as a writer, I have decided that this is my superpower. Now I need to <laughs> use it to tell other people that somehow this experience, which is so ordinary, means something bigger. And I think that's kind of what reverence I am writing with reverence means is that it's a decision. I am deciding that this moment is worth recording. I am deciding I have to sift for meaning. And I am deciding that it is worth revering, I guess. But it's no different than any other experience. Like everything else is just a dog begging for a taco and a kite caught in a tree and this little girl hitting the dirt with a branch. I think it's felt too, because we can't always put language to why things strike us. I, I yeah. certainly can't. When, when I'm reading poetry 
and a list of images that are just describing the random existence of a moment in another person's life hits me really hard sometimes just because it sounds so true and I can yeah. envision it and all of a sudden I'm there. Why it's meaningful doesn't always present itself as an obvious thing. It's just, I mean, we're all here because we love poetry. So we're all here, I think, in some way because we also love the inexplicable. And to me, that's really what it is. It's inexplicable why the little girl hitting the dirt with the branch would make my heart well up. But it just does because it just feels so true. And I know that if I sat with that image long enough, I would find some kind of personal meaning and truth for myself in it. Yeah. Well, you are that little girl. And I think about how like the most effective poems are just mirrors, right? Like they just reflect right back at you. And so I could have said a little kid, I could have said a child, but I wanted it to say little girl because to me, like these works are deeply, deeply feminine. They're not necessarily rooted in womanhood or like what it means to be a quote unquote woman, but there's a femininity in them that felt really important to me and like a callback to girlhood and the things that we are taught girls should feel and do and say and a rebellion against that by saying not only am I leaning completely into this idea that girls or women are too emotional I'm taking that and I am making that my superpower in this collection and so the introduction of the little girl and like Mm -hmm. the child self coming up over and over again like it is important to me that in some ways it is gendered because I wanted to rebel against that idea of the binary and say like my experiences are just as much about growing up as a woman as they are about growing up as an immigrant, a Coptic Mm -hmm. Egyptian. Um, And I wanted these poems to speak to that experience just as much as they do to the experience of all the other identities that are in this. That's awesome. Yeah. Would you like to go ahead and read a poem for us? Yeah, I can read Meditation in Guanajuato. Perfect. Meditation in Guanajuato, Mexico. In most of the world, dogs don't have names. Some have a few. Here in Guanajuato, the dogs come in every shade of peach. If the sea wants you, it takes you. But the sea doesn't want. Desire is a human trait. I nearly drowned on Christmas Eve in the Pacific. It was my fault. I swam into the tide. I drank up the brine. I lost the seabed and turned our sunset swim into something vulgar. This life is enchanted. We took an empty highway through the Sierra Madre Occidental. The road was unfinished, blocked off, but we did it anyway. We shared the highway with iguanas, cattle, no humans, and birds. I wondered how far we'd push it. I didn't say, turn back, turn back. I wanted to see it to its end, but a tunnel stopped us, one we couldn't hold our breaths long enough to travel through. On Christmas Eve, I heard the voice of God. It was clear, 
and loud and sounded like my own voice when it ventures into the outside world and croaks a good morning sunshine but i don't worship anyone or anything except the sea and the mountains and they will kill me eventually and i will die willingly that is my only prayer in my notebook from that day is written this not every experience is worth recording. I am more cage than bird. Reverence. I am writing with reverence. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. I love it when we get a little mini poetry reading just all to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a special treat to sit with these poems for six months and then officially get to hear them um, after just like seeing them on the page for so long. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely delightful. Um, I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about how to write a poem and to decide that certain experiences can be written down and you're the poet and you shape the language and the experience and you tell the story. Um, you mentioned the other day that you were a young poet and you've been writing poems for at the very least a decade. I never know how old you are because you just exude <laughs> youth and you're going to have to drop a skincare line very soon <laughs> or at least some secrets. But yeah, how how have you changed um, since your early days as a young poet? Mm. Or what do you carry into your work now that you shaped in your youth? Thank you for thinking I'm younger than I am. <laughs> I think for me, and this is something I learned from my mom, who is obsessed with skincare, like very much so, is joy is the secret ingredient to youth and being able to access joy, no matter how awful things are, has been my life's practice, basically. It's part of meditation, um, but it's so hard to maintain. And so I don't always look young. Sometimes I look extremely decrepit and old <laughs> and really, really tired, you know? <laughs> so I've been writing, like seriously writing poems and decided that I was going to be a writer probably when I was like 16. I had this incredible English teacher, as I feel like most people have, because the English teachers are the best, um, named Barbara Lomenzo. And she would just call me the little poet. And she would always encourage me to write. And I always loved reading. And I learned English as my second language. And I was in ESL classes. And I think that Something about the difference between Arabic and English and some of the French I knew when I was younger because I went to a French kindergarten. The little tiny differences and the major differences between my parents' language and my language has always been and will probably always just be the most fascinating thing in the world to me. I remember learning ESL, being so fascinated by English and then wanting to be like the best ever at it. Like, how can I be the best <laughs> enunciator? Like, how can I eat up as much of this vocabulary oh as possible? And so I hated school, but I loved 
English classes and Mrs. Lomenzo saw that and really fostered it. Mm -hmm. So I started going to open mics when I was like 17 at a place in York called Sparky and Clark's. Oh, what a name. Sparky and Clark's. Sparky and Clark's. (laughs) It was like the place. I mean, this is very indicative of the era because I had friends who were in bands and we would go to Sparky and Clark's on the weekends and I would watch their acoustic sets in the coffee shop and drink like Frappuccinos. And then on Thursday nights, there was an open mic and I would go to the open mic and I would share these poems I was writing in my poetry class. And and then when I got to college, I was studying playwriting and screenwriting pretty much all through undergrad. And I was still doing poems, but I was just interested in how voice, the human voice can do so much. And Mm -hmm. so I was doing performance poetry while also exploring playwriting and storytelling in these other capacities. But yeah, all of these pieces came together. And then in Philly, I founded this poetry collective called the Philadelphia Poetry Collective, the PPC. And then that just spiraled into working with all of these Philadelphia organizations. And there's a really big performance scene in Philly, especially in that era. I lived in Philadelphia from 2008 to 2018. And it was spoken word. It was just open mics were just like the thing. And I hosted so many open mics and worked with so many different organizations and individuals. And I was just like friends with all of the people who were like making it happen. And so all of that culminated in this desire to maybe get my MFA. And I was 29 when I first applied to grad schools. And the Mitchell Center was the only place I ever wanted to go. I learned about it in 2010 after very randomly contacting Jenny Brown, who is a Texan poet. And she mentioned the Mitchell Center and she's like, you should apply. You should do this thing. And I was like, I'm not good enough. I'm not experienced enough. I'm just making things up. I'm not an academic, Mm. intellectual person, but I continued to write and I continued to be parts of these circles and then decided to apply. But when I got here, I was just like, I don't know who these poets, like, I don't know who we're reading. I just had no experience because it's so split. Like there is in Philly, there's this punk poetry scene that exists entirely outside of academia and that's the world I belonged in like I was with these people who a lot of them hadn't gotten their MFAs they wrote and performed because they were compelled to they had to but I think what's interesting about what happened with pandemic is like I just forgot who I was and how much work I had done to get to this point, to be able to write these poems, to be able to make meaning and also take all of my experiences as an experimental writer and take all of my experiences as a performance poet who had done spoken word and marry all of that to create this book that Mm. is rhythmic and does have a lot of like language play and there's rhyming in it. There is a lot of like cacophonous and euphonous language. Like it's very musical. Mm -hmm. But what the Minchner Center and my experiences at UT was able to teach me that I never had before. And I think I could only have learned in a 
setting where I was in workshop every single semester, hammering over and over and over again, this question of like, what does this mean? Classmates being like, I don't understand what this means. And I'm like, fuck, I need people to be able to understand my meaning because you can't rely on words alone to emote if you're trying to tell a story. And I had left the realm of experimental writing where I was just relying on the language and the rhythm and the cadence to do all of the work of emoting and myself and my voice because these were performance pieces. Like they don't land as well on the page as they did on the stage. Um, And so for the poems to have just as much weight on the page, I needed that emotion to translate and not just rely on my own voice to just be like, chapped, clapped, lips to make love. Like yeah. that, that old school stuff that I was right. writing, whereas like Marianne's voice is integral to understanding right. this poem. Yes. How your voice comes through on the page is a completely different question. And uh, I do think for mm-hmm. all of the negative things I could say about MFA workshops, <laughs> there is something invaluable about having a group of people who are as dedicated to poetry as you are, even if it's in different ways, reading your work and providing that kind of feedback on a weekly basis. Yeah. That's something that we rarely get in our lives anywhere else. So Yeah, I think that no matter where you come from before you go into an MFA um, Mm -hmm. or what kind of poetry you write, I think that it is just such an invaluable experience. Yeah, I had a couple workshop experiences that were very jarring, Mm -hmm. but it was never from, well, sometimes it was, (laughs) but rarely it was from like the classmates or my colleagues or my friends who knew what my intentions were. Because I think a lot of times intention is not validated. And I think intention is really important because when you're bringing these raw first draft poems into workshop and you're not allowed to say what you want or what you need or what you're seeking or what your intentions Mm -hmm. are, it's very easy to misunderstand what somebody's trying to do with something because we just don't know. Especially if you're like, I have to write a poem for tomorrow. (laughs) What am I going to do? As opposed to like, this thing just happened to me. I feel like I'm going to explode unless I record this. Like they're two very different experiences. Yes. But it's interesting. One of the people that was in my cohort, um, we were in workshop together every single semester. And so I knew his work and I could see the arc of his progress and I could see, and I knew those early drafts so well. And so it's that kind of intimacy, even if, you know, we don't call it intimacy, it's, it's like unparalleled. Like you don't get that when you're just doing it by yourself Mm -hmm. or you're doing it with just one person. Um, and that's really invaluable to me too. Marianne, I want to say that like just meeting you and getting to know you, um, something, that definitely aligns with your history, just kind of in the punk scene affiliate and just kind of understanding kind of your past as an artist is that you kind of remind me of our previous chapbook prize winner, Sequoia Maynard, in that like, I don't think that poetry is your only medium. Um, I've mm. seen you take pictures and you have an artist's eye and you know, I know you're interested in film and music and all of these interests in other art kind of weasels its way into your poems, of course. 
but you do have, you're just an explosive artistic personality. And we're lucky that we love poetry and you love poetry and that you, you know, make it work on the page and have put together this beautiful book for us. Um, but would you like to tell me about some of the other art forms that you like to explore and kind of how it might satisfy some of that poetic itch that doesn't quite fit on the page sometimes? So one thing that I have always kind of like questioned is this idea that like you have to identify with being a poet or a painter or a sculptor or a musician. This idea that like we could realistically categorize ourselves as being like, okay, I write poems and therefore I'm not like an artist. We have this idea of like what an artist is, right? Like it's always very visual. But for me, it's like art is just the most human thing that humans do. It's so deeply necessary, but it's also so extracurricular, you know, like when all of your needs are met, we make art like societies have recorded their history through expressions of art since the beginning of time. But for some reason, I don't know if this is just like a new thing or maybe it's a Western thing or it's some kind of phenomenon. We are so drawn to categorization and to say like, well, if I'm going to write a book of poems, I have to study other poets. And I just have never felt that way. I've, And not because I think other poets are not good. I just don't, I'm not attracted to it as like a main form of inspiration. And for me too, it's like, I've always just called myself a writer. I don't think of myself as a poet. And I think that has these cultural connotations that I just don't connect to. I used to be an art curator. So I curated a bunch of shows in Philly, but I was, I love visual art because I'm so fascinated by how something so abstract or something so specific, again, functions as a mirror. Like visual art to me is like the most mirrored art form, you know, like you and I could look at the same abstract piece and have completely different narratives happening through our heads. So I teach a lot of ekphrastic poetry workshops because I feel like visual art is a huge entry point into just, again, the human condition, our ideas of what recording humanity looks like. And then with music, I love music. Like I, I love music more than I love anything in the whole world. And I think partially it's because I grew up in a household where my parents were constantly playing Egyptian music. My dad was always singing along to all of the songs, but also I love music because I love rhythm and I love dance and I feel it so deeply in my body. I have bongos and sometimes I'll just play the bongos in the living room and my husband just claps <laughs> along because he loves it. Like he bought me those bongos. I think a lot about the program that I ran in Philly. It was called visual arts program. It was called teen lounge. It was part of this, um, this nonprofit art school called Fleischer art Memorial. It's an amazing place. But what was amazing about that program is that it was an after school program for teenagers. And it wasn't like fixed in any particular genre or medium of art. An artist would come in, they would present an idea that they might want to teach the class. They would, we had like a science fair style 
presentation. Yeah. So one artist might be uh, like a felter and they'd be like, okay, I'm going to teach a four week class on felting and everybody will go home with a felted animal. The person next to them might be a filmmaker and be like, oh, I'm a filmmaker. I'm going to teach you how to make these claymation projects. The next person at the science fair booth for teen lounge might be, uh, you know, a classical painter. And they're like, we're going to teach you how to do landscapes. And the kids would pick and choose what they wanted to do. And because I was the coordinator for the project, I got to sit in all those classes and participate. And so mm-hmm. this is constant diverse set of ideas and approaches to art and approaches to like what art is constantly breaking the mold of what we consider to be creative expression. And that made a huge impact on me in terms of thinking about myself as a creative person, small, tiny picture. Sure. I'm a poet, but big picture. I'm just doing the same thing that a sculptor is doing. We're just using different tools. Mm -hmm. And I think it would benefit all of us, and and this is something I really believe in, that we are constantly in conversations with people who work in different mediums about their creative process, because I don't think it's that different. In fact, I feel like we have, all of us have the same like emotional language and emotional landscapes. We just use different words to describe these things. And so if we all just talked to all of the artistic people in our lives, anybody that's expressing themselves Um, artistically, I think we would find that we have so much more in common and that we can really learn from each other in ways that will open up these sort of like back doors that we didn't know we had access to. Yeah. And as an artist, not finding your identity as an artist in your form, in the specific ramifications of poetry or sculpting or filmmaking, and just considering yourself an artist and open two forms and the way they can cross pollinate that's what it means to me to be an experimental writer or an experimental Mm -hmm. artist is to remain open to yeah the possibility of these different forms to speak to each other or to create new forms even Mm -hmm. and I think that kind of brings us like full circle in a way back to your this kind of desire or interest Um, or inspiration that you find in existing in these liminal spaces in between one language and the next, one place and the next, where you don't really know everything or anything or, you know, something, right? Um, Because that means that every step that you take when you don't know what direction you're going in is a revelation and a learning process. And so... I'm talking in a circle, but I just kind of felt us return back to where we started. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, like these ideas are new to me in some ways, because what I've realized over the last two years of pandemic is you don't have to be an expert to do something. Hmm. You don't have to become an expert to try something you've never done before. And because time has shifted and changed and suddenly we have access this uncomfortable, unknowable future and also access to all this time that we filled in these weird ways before, like ways that we felt were like conducive that we don't really have access to anymore. I've realized that like you can just learn something that you've never done before and you don't have to be good at it. You just have to be curious about it. Yeah. And same thing with traveling. Like you can safely and if you're doing it safely and responsibly You can go to a part of the world that you've never been to before. You don't have to be an expert in that culture. You just have to be 
mindful, respectful, and really know how you fit in as a tourist or an expat. That's also in 16 Rabbits, this idea of what it means to be completely out of place, whether you're a tourist or you're an expat living abroad or you're an immigrant, any of these terms that we use, they all mean the same thing, which is a person who is out of place. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And they have all these different cultural connotations, but at the end of the day, like that's what it feels like coming to a new hobby or a new interest. Like I am a person who is out of place. I don't know how to play the bongos, but I'm going to try. <laughs> and like, I don't have to be an expert. I don't need to know how to read music. I don't need to know how to speak the language, but if I can do it in a way that feels responsible, whatever responsibility, all of the different kind of shapes it takes, mm-hmm. What's stopping me from doing that? And I encourage everyone to just like give yourself permission to not be good at something so that you can either get better or just like say that you tried it. Mm -hmm. A question I love to ask our authors um, is if you were able to curate the ideal reading experience for these poems, for this chapbook, is there a posture, a place Uh, a place in the world. I mean, we've got so many places in this book, a time of day, a musical accompaniment, food pairing. Um, What would that experience look like for you? Oh man, I'm going to write, I'm going to write an entire scene. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I think it's very important that when reading these poems, you are in a place where you don't understand the language happening around you. Because I think that's integral to my experience in putting these poems together. Um, And it doesn't have to mean that you're abroad. It just means maybe you're in a neighborhood of a community of immigrants that speak a language that you're not familiar with. And sit with that confusion. Because I think confusion is this emotion that we shy away from or we feel overwhelmed by and we want to like cure it. But one of my favorite mantras um, that I live by is examine your confusion and study it. So I would say in moments where you're sitting in this cafe or you're in a park, um, you're sitting with that confusion over what's happening culturally around you, but also maybe what's happening in the book. And you're studying that confusion or those moments where maybe you get like a ping in your stomach where something in the collection or something that's happening around you makes you feel uncomfortable and like to examine that moment and think about, is it the noise that's around you? Is it the experience of eating a croissant or eating grape leaves, right? Like maybe you're in a Middle Eastern restaurant and you're trying to get as close to Cairo as you possibly can. And you're in Austin and the restaurant is serving you Egyptian food. And what is it about these moments Um, because that's what the book is about. Like it is really about being in one place and being transported to a memory of another place and how those memories are so specific to your subjective experience that they don't actually exist. They're not real. Like I don't know if Oma Kelsum songs exist in, you know, every mother and child. That's just my imagination of it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, be smoking something. 
your choice. <laughs> Candy cigarettes count, but I would say smoke something, you know, shisha, smoke a cigarette, smoke a joint, like smoke something because there's something about the meditative practice of bringing something in and pushing something out. And shisha in particular is just very customary. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's, maybe it's autumn, which can mean all sorts of things depending on where you are in the world. So maybe I'll say it's like mid-October, <laughs> whatever that means for you in whatever part of the world you're in. I love that. I love that. I'm in a place where there's languages, maybe more than one being spoken that I don't know smoking something and it's mid-October. That's very Mm -hmm. specific and also opens it up to to my imagination because there's a lot of details you can fill in. I do want to say one more thing. Um, The epigraph, which it's not attributed to anyone, but it is something that Brittany and I have said to each other for our entire adult lives with no idea where it came from. But it is a very meaningful phrase to me because I think that is what sort of the book is all about, which is you are who you are everywhere you go. And it's so simple of a sentiment, but it's so expansive in its meaning and its interpretation. And it is this lifelong mantra that I carry everywhere I go is that we carry every aspect of ourselves, whether it's our inner child or who we were when we were, you know, silly teenagers and um, who I was in Philadelphia and who I was in Cairo Though all of those people come with me, no matter where I am. That's lovely. Yeah. Well, would you do us the honor of reading one last poem to close us out, Marianne? Yeah. So we didn't really talk about the presence of God or the Virgin Mary in this book. So mm. and we mentioned it was it's a very spiritual text and there is a lot of religious undertones, but It was important to me that I did not perform Christianity. I I don't want to lie to the reader and say that I am a perfect Coptic Christian woman when I'm just not. I didn't grow up in a, a family where we were part of the church. I didn't grow up in a part of the country where there is a strong Coptic presence. There are areas in America that are like that, like Jersey City and and Nashville, Tennessee has a huge Coptic population too. And but I didn't grow up in that way. And so I think part of the spirituality that runs through the book is like my interpretation of my parents' relationship to Christ and to the Virgin Mary and the house that I grew up in being the church, you know, and that sort of small intimate space being that portal into that world, but then also the natural world being a church as well, um, which is definitely a theme that runs through it. Um, And so I guess like what feels like a apt poem to end on, and it's meditation through the American South, which feels like it kind of encapsulates all of those things, but there's a lot of levity in Mm -hmm. it. So I'm going to read meditation through the American South, which is dedicated to my friends, Michael and Brittany. And just a little background and a little Easter egg, which is this poem is about a trip that Brittany, Michael, and I took driving from Philadelphia to Austin, Texas, when I was moving from Philadelphia to Austin, Texas. And this book starts with a meditation in Philadelphia and it ends in a meditation of Austin, Texas, kind of symbolizing that trip. So here it is, Meditation Through the American South. Gem mines those ships, the dragonfly that hit the windshield so hard its eye exploded. Atlanta, we drove through. 
Chattanooga a suggestion. In the woods of Montgomery, a monster truck rally dampened the mood. You loved it. In an RV park in Virginia, we watched angels take flight. A bird, a bat, a grasshopper they lift. Mountain bodies flick their tails everywhere we look. Wild blueberries, ponderosa, we recollect our lives. I was stung three times and no one believed me. In City Park, we pressed our palms together to recite the Lord's Prayer over bodies of the dead. Frogs, but nevertheless. I played Shadowland in a cornfield alone. Answered the dappled stalks, then heard your calls and came running. I prayed in that church and meant it. We all did. Hmm. That is a beautiful one to end on. Thank you, Marianne, so much for serenading us. Yeah. Um, someday we'll we'll have you serenade us with the bongos as well. <laughs> it sounds like a real treat. I definitely smoke something before I do that, but I won't say why. Something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is such a treat. And we're just so glad you could come talk with us today. And, and it was so lovely to have yeah, you. Yeah, thank you, Marianne. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Thank you.